the fundamental foundation of human trafficking is that it's a it's a financial crime, right? This is a crime about money. Um, so we focus on building that case through the financial lens, and then we do the best that we can to charge kind of a whole collection of crimes that we can sustain with or without that victim ever stepping foot into the courtroom. Good and Grounded, it's a chance to hear from the people that are doing the hard work, the really big work in our Colorado community during some very challenging times. And our next guest is certainly no exception. Lara Mullen is Chief Deputy District Attorney who was tapped to build and lead a new human trafficking unit within the Denver DA's office. And today she joins us to talk about this incredibly complicated and difficult subject. I'm Lara Love. And I'm Jim Licko. Uh, welcome and thank you for joining us, Lara. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, so the U.S. State Department estimates more than 24 million people have been victims of human trafficking. Um, it's certainly a crime that happens everywhere in every country, including the United States, including here in Colorado. But despite its prevalence, it's it's misunderstood in many ways. Many people are unaware that it's happening or they don't really know what it is. To be honest and, and to just be candid, I first saw a public education campaign about human trafficking on an advertising, like on a bus billboard or something. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. So to start with the broad question, what is human trafficking and how is it defined? Great. So um, human trafficking is an exploitation based crime. Um, and essentially it is a crime that involves either commercial sex or involuntary servitude or labor, kind of in layman's terms, that is done um, subject to force, fraud or coercion. Hmm. So you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were tapped to lead the unit and it's the first unit in our state that's dedicated to prosecuting trafficking cases. Is that right? It was not the first unit that was dedicated to prosecuting trafficking um, crimes. However, I had the luxury of only getting to prosecute human trafficking crimes. So um, I was very fortunate that our elected DA, when she came into office, asked me to develop our unit, but I was um, allowed to just focus on these crimes. And that's very unique. And I believe I'm the only prosecutor in the state of Colorado who only gets to do trafficking cases. Wow. So people have talked about how you really have transformed the way law enforcement handles trafficking and, and how you investigate cases. Can you walk us through sort of how you did that, how you transformed the way we think about this? So, you know, what's interesting is four years ago when we started our unit, there was not a human trafficking team at the Denver Police Department. Um, and so we internally were tasked with um, why aren't we seeing these cases? Where are these cases happening and how do we do a better job of identifying these cases and connecting with survivors of trafficking? Um, and so I had the luxury of traveling around the country for the greater part of a year and just talking to task forces about what they were doing well, what their challenges were, and where they were making connections with trafficking victims. Um, what I found was that we were never gonna find trafficking cases coming through the traditional method, which was somebody picks up the phone and calls 911. We were gonna find these cases and intersect with victims by connecting with community agencies, places like domestic violence drop-in centers, immigration services, things like that where um, an individual who is sort of being exploited will trust perhaps a social worker or someone who's providing services and share with them their experience. And then it was through kind of referrals from those professionals that we were going to be learning about cases. 
And so I had to start really building those relationships, um, gaining trust in the community and understanding what trafficking frankly looked like in Denver to start to make the connections um, to, to better focus our efforts and figure out where do we where do we look for this crime and then how do we connect with the survivors? Yeah, that, that's a really good transition to my next question, which I think is, has like 50 different layers to it. So excuse me while I, while I try to get to the crux of my question. When you traveled around and, and tried to gather insights and gain insight into what's going on in the world, what's happening in our country, are there places where trafficking is more prevalent? Are the, It sounds like it's a layered thing where it may take place in certain ways in one community over another. What does that look like? And then I guess a follow-up to that is, is what is unique about Denver when it comes to human trafficking? So I, I think that there are places where trafficking may be more prevalent because of populations who are at, more at risk. For instance, um, immigrant populations, um, things of that nature, or um, maybe agricultural communities where you might have an influx of workers who are particularly vulnerable to exploitation. But the moral of the story is trafficking happens everywhere because exploitation happens everywhere. But there are certain communities who, frankly, have just done a better job of, of identifying it and seeing it in their communities. Um, and there are other places that just simply believe it's not happening. But my experience has been it's it's happening everywhere. Um, large cities, rural communities, coastal areas, border towns. Um, certainly whenever I have conversations, people always say, trafficking, we don't have that in Denver, right? That happens in Texas, that happens in Florida. Um, and that's just not, that's just not accurate. Um, certain communities have done a better job of, I think, partnering with the um, human services community to identify what types of trafficking are happening there. And so, for instance, you know, on the Western Slope or in Southern Colorado or even some of the Eastern Plains, we see more labor trafficking happening. And we know about that not because of contact with law enforcement, but because of their connections with organizations like Colorado Legal Services, um, you know, immigration um, organizations that help people with pro bono legal aid, things like that. That's how we learn about sort of the specifics of what's happening in the communities, not necessarily through case numbers or reports. So for people that still don't imagine that trafficking happens here in Denver, would you be willing to share just an example of a couple of the cases that you've worked on recently? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that that we always say trafficking is a crime that sort of happens in plain sight, you know, or is hidden in plain sight. So um, we see trafficking happening with domestic violence cases a lot. Um, I'll say anecdotally that in my years in our family violence unit, prosecuting domestic violence, homicides or domestic violence assaults, um, there were times when there were pieces that didn't make sense um, in the case. And I didn't know enough. I wasn't educated enough to ask those additional questions about what might be happening. We see the same thing with sexual assault, where somebody may report a sexual assault that's happened at the hands of a, a commercial sex buyer. And so we've only investigated it as such, but we haven't really asked the question about why did that victim get there in the first place, right? What was the, what were they doing there um, to engage in sex with that person in the first place? Um, I think a great example is we've, we've been doing a lot of work with the illicit massage businesses in the Denver community and in, you know, the larger metro area. And, and those are businesses that by and large, we've always looked the other way and allowed it to happen. And we, what we see there oftentimes is a really interesting confluence of sex and labor trafficking happening, um, where foreign nationals, mostly women, are being brought in, um, are being rotated through these businesses. Um, and then, you know, those who are sort of facilitating that are making huge amounts of money off of their labor. Um, so we see it in a, in a variety of contexts. And 
usually it takes personnel, victim advocates, a lot of different professionals who are trained to recognize indicators of human trafficking to start to build and develop these cases in that direction. Because I'll tell you that no one ever comes to me and says, I'm a victim of human trafficking. You know, they, Victims and survivors of trafficking don't identify as such. They don't see their experience as that. And oftentimes they're very surprised and shocked when I sit down to tell them that that's the charges that I'm filing in their case because they've never labeled themselves as a victim of human trafficking nor their experience as that. They've only seen it as domestic violence or um, you know, something similar. Along those lines, we've heard you talk about, you work with, you know, provide trainings for and work with healthcare providers and community-based nonprofits and first responders um, to identify possible trafficking victims. You've talked about using a victim-centered approach, not a victim-built approach. Can you explain what that means? So one of the frustrations that I think all people in law enforcement across the board and and certainly survivors of, of domestic violence and sexual assault have have seen and talked about for years is the way that the criminal justice system works is that that victim is sort of on the hook to build, you know, to be the source of evidence in a case. And so historically, when I would try a domestic violence case or a sexual assault, that victim had to come into court, right? They had to spend hours on the witness stand recounting all of this terrible trauma that they've endured. And um, without them, we had no case. That was one of the resounding themes that I heard from task forces across the country when I did travel around was they build these cases, but due to sort of the unique trauma that human trafficking victims suffer, um, they're, they're hard to support or you know keep engaged in a case. Oftentimes they have much more um, pressing life priorities, right? Like the, the the sort of hierarchy of needs of housing and safety and maybe taking care of their children, that being part of a criminal case isn't um, at the top of their list. And that was always historically frustrating to law enforcement. And so what we've done essentially is, is shift that, which is when we encounter a, a, a victim or survivor on a new case, the first thing we talk about is safety. Um, we connect them with services. We talk about holistic approach in terms of thinking about therapy, thinking about housing, both short-term and long-term. And we allow that person to just focus on themselves rather than immediately bringing them in and having them sit for a five-hour interview. Um, the, the beauty, I guess, or sort of the fundamental foundation of human trafficking is that it's a, it's a financial crime, right? This is a crime about money. And so in every step of the way, both in sex and labor trafficking, there's a money trail. Um, so we focus on building that case through the financial lens. And then we do the best that we can to charge kind of a whole collection of crimes that we can sustain with or without that victim ever stepping foot into the courtroom. So that if they so desire to be part of the criminal process, we can also pursue additional charges. But if they don't, I can still hold that offender accountable with a money laundering charge, with a racketeering charge, with a lot of other crimes that are that probably, you know, still have a pretty significant impact and criminal penalty. Um, and, and that victim is sort of freed up from the responsibility of also having to prove the criminal case. That's pretty fascinating. How did your work change during the past 18 months? Was this different for you with COVID? I have to imagine it was. Well, I think it was different in so many respects. Um, you know, physically, obviously, trying to work remotely on a team that's incredibly collaborative is is challenging. 
Um, my day-to-day -day work in this unit looks very different from every one of my colleagues in that I was spending a lot of time in the community. Um, I would go out to the community and meet with victims wherever, you know, we'd meet them both sort of physically and uh, metaphorically. You know, we'd go and meet them at a coffee shop, recognizing that people don't always want to come into our office. And all of a sudden that capability changed, trying to connect with people either over the phone or remotely. It's difficult to build the same trust and rapport. Um, for a long time, you know, the same referrals that we were getting from community partners slowed because they weren't doing in-person right. casework. They weren't connecting with people in the same way. And so it became harder just to connect with survivors. Um, and, and that was very frustrating for us because at the same time, we were very cognizant of the fact that the opportunities for exploitation were greater due to COVID, right? Due to housing instability, due to mental health, um, substance use crises that we were having, you know, a lot of the things that were going on, lack of employment opportunities, that people were incredibly desperate. Um, we were seeing an increase in juvenile runaways, which as we know, puts them at really high risk for trafficking. And so we really had to shift the way that we were able to serve survivors, what that looked like. Um, but we, we kept going, we kept having all of our meetings, both internally with my team here and at the police department, We'd still just be on the phone, you know, every day and be on the computer every day and we'd be triaging cases and our cases certainly didn't slow um, at all. We just had to kind of do some workarounds to still keep victims engaged, to still have them feel connected and supported and um, do a lot of research to try to find, you know, new um, services because the traditional form of, of support in terms of therapy and things like that changed changed pretty dramatically. So um, it, it certainly made the work challenging. And then of course, just the, the physical change, which is we were all physically at home. Um, myself, my investigator, my victim advocate all have young kids. So we're trying to do this really sensitive work at home with young children, you know, in the background. And how do you deal with that just from a, a, the practical standpoint of we're talking about things that other people shouldn't be hearing. You know, we're having really sensitive conversations. We're, we're, we're building um, grand jury cases where we're talking about classified information and we're trying to do so in a format that's anything but, you know, protected and classified. So while, while the dog barks in the background yeah. and while the, while the baby's crying and whatever else is going on. It's, uh. it's been a wild, it's been a wild ride. But, you know, the converse of that is, is that um, we all were able to kind of show our humanity a little bit more. You know, I got to have meetings with, with survivors on the computer um, but my kids were sitting next to me because that was just the reality that we were all living in. Um, and so in some regards, you know, you can have more approachability in that way. Right. Yeah. I know one of the big things that we wanted to talk to is, is what are some of the warning signs or what are the things that Joe Public, Laura and I, anybody else could, could keep an eye out for? Are there things, are there triggers or signs that we could look for um, that we may not be looking for that, that may be helpful in, in bringing some of this to light? Certainly, you know, and I think I, I can never underestimate too just the power of the gut. And I say this, we, we do a lot of trainings across the community to everybody from, you know, DPS school drivers to social workers with human services who, despite their extensive training, didn't have a lot of human trafficking training. Um, oftentimes there's just something about either a relationship that you are seeing develop or just even a, a brief um, observation on the corner that just something about it feels innately wrong to you, but you can't really um, tangibly explain why. Um, we always encourage people that, you know, even that, that that very small thing is is a tangible thing that could be something. Um, it certainly, 
when you when you have say friends or family who um you know they have a somewhat of a behavioral change much like we would say to someone if you're observing somebody engaged in a domestic violence relationship um that they start to have things that are just not true to their character um they they're evasive about things certainly when we talk about um youth you know if they all of a sudden have multiple cell phones that you you as a parent didn't purchase for them or that you know as a teacher you're seeing a child with multiple cell phones or new things that's certainly a warning sign um older boyfriends and girlfriends um we always say to law enforcement when they're when they're conducting traffic stops if you have a young person in a vehicle with adults who are not related to them that that's a warning sign you know you should look into that a little bit more um or somebody who is you know we we do we we've created through the Denver Anti-Trafficking Alliance a whole medical protocol because medical professionals oftentimes intersect with survivors of trafficking. Um do you see somebody who who comes in and they are malnourished or they're just not dressed appropriately for the weather? Um we certainly see people who are disoriented to time and place. Um we've contacted survivors of trafficking before and we say, "How long have you been in Colorado?" and they'll say, "What's Colorado?" you know, foreign nationals. Um things like that 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 are clearly uh, demonstrative of a larger problem of somebody not willingly being in the place that you encounter them. Um and so, you know, it's difficult because there's not a singular indicator that says, "Oh, this person is being trafficked." It's a collection of things, but um just just observing, you know, certainly um both for the medical personnel and law enforcement when when someone when something doesn't seem right but somebody won't make eye contact with you um and you're sort of attempting to engage with them um and they won't make eye contact with you or they appear to be under somebody else's control um and that person's sort of dictating what they do or clearly they're looking to that person for direction about whether they can answer or, um you know do whatever it is that they're being requested to do that's certainly certainly a warning sign so i think that there's a lot of you know there's a there's a whole collection of indicators depending on the circumstance um but ultimately your gut is really the best truest barometer when when you feel like something is just wrong and we always encourage people you know call the national human trafficking hotline it doesn't hurt to call um you can always call and then based on the location of the caller it will be routed to my team and the Denver Police Department team immediately and we follow up on every single one of those calls um as well as the the Conet state hotline that you see on some of the campaigns that's out that are out there now um we always refer people and say you know go ahead and call those and it doesn't hurt because um you never know what that one call may actually result in in terms of an investigation Mm, that's a perfect segue. We always like to leave the listeners with something they can do if they certainly notice it and those two hotlines are um important. So we'll be sure to share those. And and last but not least, if somebody wants to get involved more on a volunteer basis or to help out, how do they get involved? So there's so many different ways when we have uh quarterly meetings as part of the Denver Anti-Trafficking Alliance, which is a collection of um individuals all across the Denver metro area engaged in um public sector, private sector, nonprofits, everything in between. We always encourage people if you're interested in in joining data um they can do so. We've got quarterly meetings where we meet and discuss trends in in trafficking. Um we've got a whole number of subcommittees that people can join to do active work in this field. So we have a committee that just looks at juvenile trafficking. We have a medical subcommittee. We have a mental health subcommittee. You know, all with the goal of raising awareness 
um, and increased identification and protection. So there's a lot of different opportunities just through the, the Trafficking Alliance to assist and to, for people to lend their expertise or, or even just their time. Well, as a Denver resident, I am grateful that our DA tapped you to lead the charge in this. I can't imagine anyone better doing <laughs> Agreed. that. Agreed. Thank you for all you're doing and for your time today. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Laura. Wow, what a heavy topic, obviously, and, and something that it's hard to kind of come up with a, a, a cool thing to follow up that discussion. But as I think about our discussion, Laura, with Laura Mullen, and the main call to action is like, we all need to keep our eyes open. We all need to make the phone call if we suspect something, have the conversation if we suspect something, look out for our neighbors and that kind of thing. And as we enter the fall months here, I know a lot of my neighbors are digging their gardens out and I've seen four or five different baskets of produce in the yard that just says free you know, take some tomatoes, we've got too many. And it just is a, it's a nice thing to see in your community when people start looking out for each other in whatever way that might be. Um, fresh produce, keeping people safe, checking in on your neighbors, checking in on your older neighbors, those types of things. So um, I think my cool thing is just um, community and keeping an eye on each other and, and looking out for one another. If you hear of a good story or you know a leader that we should reach out to to share their story, please let us know and just drop us a line. And make sure and subscribe, share this podcast, and let's do some more good in our Colorado communities. Thanks for joining us.